Hello and welcome to Freelance Corner. I'm Jess and this is Faye. Hiya. Now regular listeners may notice the name change. This podcast used to be called Freelance Party Broadcast but we decided to rebrand ourselves as Freelance Corner as that's the name of the platform that this is the podcast of. Before we get started, just a reminder that we are recording from home, so the sound quality may not be as good as you're used to, but we're doing everything to make sure that the podcast is being brought to you. Today's question that we want to answer is, how can freelancers get a mortgage? We're joined by Simon Butler, Head of Mortgages at CMME. Welcome, Simon. Hi, how are you both? (laughs) Good, thank you. How are you? Yeah, not too bad, not too bad. Good, good. CMME is a mortgage brokerage specialising in helping the self-employed access mortgages. We're delighted to have you here, Simon, as this is a question so many listeners had. Could we start for our listeners that don't know about CMME? Um, could you tell us what you do? Yeah, sure. Um, so CMME have been um, helping and, and supporting contractors, freelancers, the, the self-employed um, to secure mortgage finance now. I, believe off the top of my head probably for somewhere in the region about 15 years now so I've been with the business um, coming up to nine years for my since I started as a broker and um, actually moved into a management position around four or five years ago so yeah we I mean we've very much been at the I, I suppose at the, the front end of, of trying to make sure that lenders continue to support contractors to evolve their their policy to um, to allow contractors to still secure mortgages and just to make sure that the the same options, the same range of choices you'd expect to get if you were working on a PAY basis, you can secure and you know make sure you're actually getting an, an option that's that's competitive. Because I think a lot of the a lot of the expectation from the self-employed and freelance particularly is that they kind of get short shrift from a lot of the the main lenders in the market and they kind of expect not to get the same range of choices. So you know we've done a lot of work in that area and we've been working with lenders for many many years to make sure that's the case. And I think you know. When when people do actually speak to us or speak to a broker that's in a similar position to ourselves, they'll find that you know the market is a lot more open than than they might realise. That's great because I think that's such a worry for so many freelancers, especially if you go into freelancing at around the age that you want to get a mortgage. It's actually quite daunting when you think of you know it's so it's just I guess it's got this kind of reputation of being really difficult to get a mortgage as a freelancer. Yeah, I think I, th- I think a lot of it comes down to the understanding of what's required. I think in a lot of cases, more than often, you can you can approach the situation alone. And I think what will often happen is you're you're effectively, to some degree, trying to understand what the lender is looking for up front. And if you represent yourself and present your your application simply following what you'd expect to be providing, then nine times out of ten, you'll be treated in exactly that way. A lender's not really going to come to you to say, look, you're a contractor, I can see you're a contractor, I would rather have, or we would rather have this information. You know, so where a lot of people we speak to fall down in the application process is they've gone ahead initially on, on, on you know, their own backs, so they've gone to speak to a lender, they've represented their, their, you know, themselves in the way they would expect to be representing themselves. And then we talk to them and we actually confirm, well, you know, to be fair, there are other ways you can approach this um, and actually where you're aware of it. And that's more than often where we, we actually end up speaking to a lot of people. So, I mean, one of the biggest hurdles, obviously, and I think this speaks for more than just freelancers, but everyone, but obviously, especially freelancers, is saving for the deposit. So this can obviously feel so daunting and it's particularly hard for freelancers because they've got fluctuating incomes and have to think about their life savings too. So what's your advice for that? And how can you start saving for that mortgage deposit? It's um, That's a really, really good question, to be fair. I think 
um, I don't, you know, I don't really want to teach anyone to suck eggs here because I guess everybody's aware of what they should be doing to save, or at least you should be. I mean, you know, if your parents ever told you to do it when you're younger. Um, there's, there's a method that everybody kind of, um, I, I suppose, has. And I think my mantra for that really is just every single month, however you work, just make sure you're putting a small amount away on a consistent basis and, and do it in such a way that you just forget you've got the money. You know, having a direct debit from any account, whether it's your business, whether it's your personal, however you're paid, just put a chunk of money you know you consistently put away on a consistent basis. And it, and it does start to build up very quickly. Now, I would also be putting it into an account that you don't use on a regular basis. Because I think the temptation for anyone there is to see, you know, hundreds and thousands of pounds building up over time and something pops up in the market, you know, PS5 came out very recently, for example, someone was a client inclined to go that way or whatever, you know, there might be something that will pop up, a life event that changes things and people suddenly start dipping into their savings and, and you know, start wasting it. From, from a freelancer and a self-employed person's perspective, I mean, it's probably important to understand you can actually use accrued monies from a business to, to support a mortgage deposit. What a lot of lenders look for there is they don't, they're not often comfortable with what, what would be considered director's loans. So if someone has a limited company and they want to make a loan from their business to themselves to, to raise a deposit, a lot of lenders don't like that. What you would normally have to do is, is effectively increase the amount you pay yourself in that year as a, a dividend or you know, as, as profits from the company to effectively put towards a deposit. So you can do that. Um, that's absolutely fine. And, and majority of lenders are comfortable with, with that being the case. What we have actually seen for a lot of people that are struggling to build a deposit on their own is, I mean, you've got the age old adage of the bank of mum and dad being an option and or at least a, a wealthy, wealthy relative or benefactor. I mean, there are many ways that you can go around securing money or, or, or receiving support from a family member. So the simplest way would be for um, someone to give you a, a gifted deposit. So quite a lot of lenders will actually accept a gift from a family member. What they're looking for there is that the lender is giving the money to you as opposed to giving it to you with an expectation that they will at some stage receive it back. Because if you fall into that category, then most lenders will treat that as a, as a debt payment and they wouldn't normally just you know ignore it in terms of an affordability process. But there are other options as well. A lot of lenders actually have mortgages now. There's something called the family springboard mortgage that Barclays have, where if your parent or family member would rather put the money into a savings vehicle, knowing it's there at some point for them to, to have access to or, or to get the money back out as and when they need it they effectively put the money into the um, into a savings account with the same bank you're taking the mortgage with in this case it's Barclays and what Barclays would effectively do is say okay well we can see you're good for the 15% deposit because you've got it in that savings account therefore we'll give you a mortgage at 85% because in essence the money is there and it's sitting in an account and acting as a security and then at some point in the future effectively the terms can be changed the money can be drawn back out and you know that family member will, will recoup their money. But the good thing with that as well is the person that's put that money into that account still accrues interest on the money. So it isn't as simple as saying to your parent, look, I'm asking for, I don't know, £25,000 of your money, which you're now not going to earn an interest on for the next five years while I'm using it. You can actually invest it in this product and, and we can still, you know, we can do what we want to do and you still get some money back from it. So there's a variety of ways of putting a deposit together. But I think the, the fundamental number one point is you just need to start doing it and doing it on a consistent basis. Yeah, we've had a few discussions about this on the podcast. And I know a lot of people suggest those um, apps on your phone where it rounds up savings. Um, so if you spend 97 pence, it takes three pence out and stuff like that. And it does add up. On the family springboard mortgages, I think because our listeners are probably in their 20s or early 30s, that might be something that they're considering. And a lot of them would be first time buyers. 
Do those family springboard mortgages only apply to first time buyers or can you still access that if it's your second property or or more? It, it would normally be in a situation, I believe, where you don't um, you don't tend to own a property. I think mainly because it is seen as more of a first time buy product. I think it's if you go back a few years ago, you used to have something called a guarantor, which is very much the same thing. You know, a parent or or some family member would step in and, and kind of guarantee the loan for you. But it tends to be more as a first time buyer type of product. Really, I mean, the, the first time buyer market at this point in time is being squeezed more than any other point in the last few years you know it's impossible at this point really to get anything with a five percent deposit ten percent loans are pretty rare and if they are available the underwriting is pretty restrictive um so these these kind of mortgages are filling those gaps to kind of at least give people the opportunity to get on the ladder but yeah so to answer your question jess it's probably more of a first time buyer product in the, in the majority of cases that's fair enough i guess that's why i expected it's just interesting um to just see if there was anything else on the market i think that's what a lot of people will be thinking at the moment so the other thing that's a, a really big at the moment is stamp duty savings, because uh, the Chancellor Rishi Sunak announced that a few months ago. I mean, we're talking at the end of November, um, and I still don't know if I'm any clearer on what it is, who gets it, how much saving you get. Could you explain it for us? What is stamp duty savings? Yeah, sure. So um, the Chancellor introduced a few months back, um, post-lockdown, uh, an opportunity to, for people up to the end of March 2021 to effectively buy a property up to £500,000 without paying a penny of stamp duty. So normally there would be a, a fairly sizable amount of stamp duty. Just to give you a breakdown of that, the stamp duty measures are usually split at different levels as you go up the, the, the ladder in terms of how much you borrow. So between 125000 to £250,000, you would effectively pay 2% on the difference between 125 and 250, and then from 250 up to 925,000 pounds, there's a five percent charge for any money you borrow in that in that window. So essentially, if you were going to buy a property for 500,000 pounds normally and after March 31st, 2021, you would be basically paying about 15,000 pounds. So it's a fairly sizable saving if you're looking at properties around that measure. And if someone, I mean, I'm not saying everybody's going to be in this position. I would certainly say as a first time buyer, you'd probably not be in this position as well. But even for people looking to buy above £500,000, it allows them to get the first £500,000 worth of borrowing stamp duty free. The issue with this at the moment, though, is, we, we, and this is what a lot of people inside the industry are kind of hoping for, or at least asking for, is that the government potentially consider extending the holiday. Because there's this expectation at the moment, there's a bit of a cliff edge coming up in the market at the end of March next year, where the market could potentially fall into a lot of trouble because so many people have been using this over the last few months that suddenly if people aren't in, in the process of buying right now, because it takes so long to get a mortgage approved at the moment and solicitors are taking so long to do what they need to do to deal with the back end of the process, a lot of people might get to the end of March, not be complete and suddenly be told, well, you can't have the, um, the saving. And it might actually mean as well that people have the have moved forward in good faith and don't have that, say, £15,000 or, or even less, if it's, it's less than that, they just don't have the money. So they may suddenly have to pull out. So we're, we're hoping the government might give us some reassurances. Um, we haven't heard anything yet. I mean, as you can imagine, we look at it daily and, and we haven't heard or seen anything just yet. So we're just holding, holding fire and hoping that they're going to do something about that. But I hope that kind of helps to, to make it a bit clearer. It does. Thank you. I just wondered on that, are banks making it easier to borrow because of the stamp duty savings at all? No, that's probably the honest answer. Um, unfortunately, banks, I mean, banks have their own risk. They have their own requirements. They've got their own lending needs year on year to, to think about, you know, they've, they've, they've all got targets. They've all got aims to, you know, what they hit need to hit in a financial year. And unfortunately, at this point in time, banks are 
probably more restrictive than they've been for quite some time. I think there's many reasons for that. You know, um, unfortunately, a lot of people have been put onto furlough and the banks are paying attention to that in quite a lot of detail. You know, most banks will say to someone looking to borrow money right now who have been on furlough, we need you to have, have a clear, confirmed set of income. Um, you know, however you're going to provide that set of income documents, whether it be bank statements, basics, whatever it might be, to say that you've been back in work for at least three months before they'll consider lending. You know, we've got people that have taken mortgage holidays. If they've already got a mortgage, those people are being affected and banks are looking at that a little bit more restrictively. And to be fair, while you can still get a mortgage as a freelancer and as someone who's self-employed, the self-employed market's actually, um, you know, the, the lenders are asking for a lot more information now than they ever have before as well on, on self-employed individuals, just to make sure that people aren't, you know, effectively misrepresenting themselves, I think is a fair way of putting it. But I think banks are being a little bit, little bit aggressive in terms of what they're looking for. Wow. And um, I suppose like with what you're saying, where the banks are asking for more documentations and things, what documents do freelancers need to provide uh, when applying for a mortgage? And what's the difference between a sole trader and their needs to provide and a limited company director? It's a good question. I'd look at it from two different points of view, because this is something, um, you know, something we always like to make clear to people that have a contract. So if you're, you're a contractor, first of all, you don't have to approach this on the basis of um, the same way that someone who's self-employed would normally have to approach the application in terms of what you provide. So if you are a contractor, there are lenders in the market right now who will look at the contract, they'll look to see how much you're paid on a daily or an hourly rate, and they will actually annualise the income to get a truer reflection of what you're earning each year. Now, what they then do is they'll go and look at the business bank statements uh, that you, you know, where your income will be going into just to make sure that that annualised figure is, is reflected by what's going into the bank statements. Now, what that allows you to do is tap into the full amount of your income, whereas if you're self-employed and you're providing self-employed documentation, so business bank statements, trading accounts, whether you're sole trader or, or limited, you'd be asked to provide all that information. The lender will only take, for someone who's using a limited company, their salary and dividend drawings, and for someone who's a sole trader, the amount of money you made as profit after tax. So those, those figures will often not truly reflect what that individual fully earned in that the year. So to give you a good example, if someone's on a day rate of say three to four hundred pounds a day, if you work out on an annualized basis, that person would be somewhere earning somewhere in the region of anywhere between sort of 75 to probably somewhere in the region of about 90,000 pounds a year. Using a contract and the bank statements, you can actually get to that level of, of income in a mortgage application process. And most lenders will then multiply that amount by say four, four and a half times income. So the amount you can borrow is very significant. Now, if you go back to using salary and dividends from those people, because they're going to be looking at a situation where they want to, um, to, to essentially, you know, not, not have too much tax on what they're earning and effectively take out as much as they need from the company, um, you're probably talking, most people taking some of the region about £45,000, roughly, if they're earning the same amount of income. And therefore, you're only going to get four to four and a half times that level of income, as opposed to effectively getting double that if you're using the contract. So there's a range of ways that lenders will look at it. But I think in, the, in the most cases, that, that pretty much covers it. I think if you've got a contract, it's absolutely worth investigating using the contract because you can definitely secure far more borrowing and it will make the application process far easier. That's so interesting. And I think that's something that a lot of freelancers don't do is, is get that contract in place. For people who, you know, working as a freelancer as a side hustle, but have an a income as well as a, a side hustle, how complicated is it for them to prove their earnings or how can they use that in a mortgage application? 
Again, I mean, if you're talking about that kind of situation and there's, there isn't a contract in place or there's several contracts in place, I mean, we speak to a lot of people that work in TV, you know, and film industry, all sorts of different walks of life where there's several different contracts. Most lenders will actually tend to work towards the, the most valuable contract of, say, two or three, or they will annualise that. The easier way probably for someone in that situation to go is probably really to use the, the trading accounts. So most people will then look at the accounts and they'll use the salary and dividend drawings from them. There are some lenders out there, to be fair, though, that will take um, net profit after tax off of a a set of limited company accounts. And that can actually offer a far bigger level of income to use. Um, I think the important thing for most people to bear in mind, though, is if your business is improving year on year, lenders will average income based on the last couple of years earnings. If your business has declined, a touch even by you know a small amount of money so five ten thousand pounds in, in year on year they'll generally tend to take the most recent year set of figures but you can um to, to answer that just to be fair i think you can can rely on the accounts is probably the best way of being able to prove your income i think that's the way that most lenders will probably probably assess that i had a question and it's just popped into my head now obviously when applying for a mortgage a lot of people that will apply for a mortgage tend to go as a couple so therefore you get a larger mortgage you can afford a larger house but obviously those that are solely buying a property it tends to be a lot harder but will that affect you if you're freelance as well so if a freelancer is looking to purchase a property by themselves yes and no i think it depends on how much you're earning the more income you've got the better um so if you can go in go in on a, on a purchase with um even a friend perhaps who's willing you know you should house sharing with you can still do that by the way you know, so if there's a situation where you're both willing to go ahead, you're both willing to sign up to, you know, a, a legal agreement to confirm that you have an equal split of the property, that's one other way to, to go about doing it. It would certainly be more difficult for someone on their own unless their income was substantial enough to do it. I mean, if we talk about most contractors and freelancers we speak to, you know, the vast majority are, are still living in London, despite, um, you know, I, I guess that could change given what's gone on with the pandemic, you never know. But um, a lot of people do live in London. And I know for a fact now, even even still now, you know, the average flat in London probably costs somewhere in the region of about £400,000. It's not really shifted much over the last few years. So yeah, it's, it's probably probably harder for someone on their own. So if you can get into a position where you can get support somehow, whether that be a bigger deposit from family, whether that be uh, a friend to, to maybe move in with you, it, it's another way to go. So for example, you wanted to live by yourself and you were self-employed and you're looking to get this mortgage by yourself. Is there still the option for the guarantor or not? Is that still a thing? Yeah, so things like the family springboard mortgages, those those options are all available for someone buying on their own. Absolutely. I mean, there's other there other alternative schemes. You've got the help to buy scheme, which is still available for new build property. Um, still available for a bit longer, and you can access that as a as an individual. Um, you know, there's there's a variety of other ways to deal with this. I mean, shared ownership actually, for anyone who isn't aware of it, is quite a, still quite a prominent option in the market where you can buy a small amount of a property um, to begin with, so say 25% as a share of the overall value. And then over time, you can effectively buy further shares. So the way that a lot of single people get into the market is to, um, to potentially look at a flat, say, as a, you know, I don't know how much it's going to be worth, say three, £400,000. You buy the first 25% and put a deposit down on that amount. And the rest is still owned by the developer or whoever owns the property effectively or the land. And then over time, you effectively go back to them to buy a further tranche of the, of the loan. Most lenders actually offer those options and it's a good way to get onto the market and it allows people who have got smaller deposits or less income to actually get access. So it's a good option. 
potentially for, for people in that position. That's really cool. I literally had no idea that people could do that. <laughs> yeah, no, it's a good one to look at for. And um, you'll find most developers that build new build developments actually um, actually have to give a certain amount of property over to those kind of schemes um, each time they develop. So you'll find that some of the residential properties will go to residence access through council council usage um, and then actually they, they do allow a certain amount to go through um, shared ownership schemes so there's there's plenty of lenders that will do it plenty of um, developers you know sign up for those schemes so it's, it's one to look for definitely so while people are, are saving and trying to get that deposit what else can freelancers do to prepare themselves to become kind of mortgage ready i think 100 percent the key here is first of all concentrate on credit so credit is the number one issue we find whenever we go ahead with submitting a mortgage application. And what I mean by credit is taking time to, to go through a, a credit agency to have a look at your report, first of all. So there's plenty of them out there. Credit Karma is probably one of the most well-known. You've got Equifax, you've got Experian, you've got a range of, of credit score providers. But I would probably go and speak to one of those first of all, get yourself set up for an account, most are free, and then thoroughly review your report to look at what's been going on in the report in recent times. So you know, have you had a, a significant amount of credit checks completed on you recently? If you're going to apply for a mortgage, stop. Like, don't do any more anytime soon because the more credit checks you have against you in a short period of time, the quicker it degrades your score. Most people aren't aware of the fact that if you repeatedly credit score yourself, the score that you'll see when you enter one of these systems actually rapidly decreases if you do it in a short period of time. And most of those scores don't update for anywhere between three to six months. So some of the activity you could be completing, it might take a while for that to actually impact your report, hit it. And quite often we see that occur where someone will say, oh, my report's fine. And then they come and speak to you two months later to apply and suddenly they've done loads of things in the background and their score's gone just rock bottom. Thinking about debt and, and your debt profile, if you've got unsecured debt, there's a couple of things you need to be aware of that. So first of all, don't apply for unsecured debt before you're applying for a mortgage. Absolutely a no-no. And don't think about taking a deposit out as a loan because lenders will, will not appreciate that and they won't like it and they will definitely definitely track the um, the source of your deposit to determine whether you did that in the first place. Also, because of your credit scoring yourself, again, it could impact your overall score. If you've got credit cards or, or open store credit that you're not using and you don't need, I would suggest closing it because what a lot of lenders now do is they will look at open credit and take it into account when they're assessing affordability. So a good example there would be, and I know anyone that's got a credit card would have had these letters or seen these emails from their credit card provider. You can go initially and secure yourself a credit card of, say, a couple of thousand pounds. Now, if you've managed that appropriately over a few years, what they'll tend to do is then send you letters every so often and say, oh, we've, you know, we've bumped your limit up by £5,000. It's now £10,000. You know, that's the way they, they operate because ultimately they're looking for you to, to be tempted to borrow more. The problem there is, though, for a lender... If you're even if you're not using that ten thousand pounds credit you have available, they will consider that as available credit and will usually reduce the amount of borrowing you can take on a mortgage by that amount. So it's really really important to be aware of that because if you don't need it and you've got no need for it in the future, I would close those accounts. Being registered to vote is massively massively important, and a lot of people miss this one. Now it's important anyway. I'm not going to bend anybody's ear about voting, and obviously, but you know I have my own views on that, and it's I think it's an important thing to do, especially when you have the option to do it. But Putting that to one side, the real reason I would say it's important to, to register to vote is it's a key indicator of where you're located. So when vendors complete a credit score, registration to vote is tagged to the address of where you've confirmed to local councils that you are going to be the next time you go to vote. And credit scoring systems latch onto that absolutely in every single case. And if you are 
not living at the property you've addressed as registered to vote. It can cause massively conflicting information coming back and forth from credit checks. It's probably one of the key issues we have with credit checking. I think finally, just generally speaking, managing your finances day to day is very, very important. Most lenders will normally look at personal bank statements going back three months. So the key advice we give to everyone we speak to is absolutely keep a clean house for the next three months leading up to the mortgage application because lenders will look for things like uh, large payments going out of your account. They'll look for items such as missed bill payments. They'll look for people consistently being in their overdraft on a regular basis without clearing it. You know, all those, all those elements are really, really important. So for anyone that's looking for a mortgage, it's, it's really key to bear those points in mind because if you aren't addressing each of those individually, it, it can really impact you. That's exactly what I was going to ask about um, then because that, that's such an important thing um, for many reasons. But I have noticed it is it's like a, a number one thing that you can do today to help your mortgage application is registered to vote. That's all been so interesting so far. Before we answer the question sent in from freelancers, Faye and I decided that each week we want to celebrate a success story of one of you at home. So I asked freelancer Twitter to send in their biggest success from that week. This week's featured freelancer is Eileen Adamson, who one day this week spent the morning going mountain biking coaching, uh, which she says was awesome fun. She then worked like a, and I quote here, wee demon in the afternoon, whizzing through tasks that could have taken her all day. Faye, it's got me thinking, maybe we need to start going mountain biking in the morning before we record these podcasts. I'm really sorry, but I can't think of anything worse. But (laughs) kudos to you, because I think that's fantastic. But I'm going to stick to walking. I don't think mountain biking is my thing. I'm far too clumsy. (laughs) I was just about to say, I think it's the clumsiest for us two. We'd end up in (laughs) A&E. Yeah, I don't think it's healthy for me to do that. (laughs) But fantastic. And if you want to be our featured freelancer in the next episode of Freelance Corner, please send us your success, no matter how big or small, to content at freelancecorner.co.uk and we'll let you know if you feature. Now we have some questions sent in from freelancers. Firstly, Thomas asks, I have had to dip into my mortgage savings during the pandemic as I have struggled to find work. I feel far behind on my savings. How can I work out a savings plan? Now, Simon, you touched on this earlier, but um, it might be worth going into a bit more detail now about how you can work out a savings plan when you have a fluctuating income. Yeah, I think it's it's, it's a tough one, isn't it? Because I think it's one of these situations where not knowing if you've got consistency around your income for the next sort of couple of months, year, two years, you know, what, what do you do? What do you put away? I think I would just encourage anybody that's in that position just to, to sit down really consider how much they can afford to put away on a month by month basis and consider if they are going to put money away perhaps a, a good way of doing this is to to perhaps create two accounts so put one where you you effectively create an account you're never going to touch like that's your absolute golden hand on heart i will never dip into that until i'm ready to proceed and buy a property and then perhaps have what i would call more of a, an available loose cash savings account where you know you can dip into if you need to if any life events occur or any issues occur that you, you can kind of, you know, access the money. I think that's probably a really good way to do it. Having one sole savings account is, all, you know, psychologically speaking, it's always so easy just to go to it and just tell yourself it's, it's fine. It's a hundred pounds. What was it? What's it going to hurt? But the minute you do that, every time you do that over and over and over again, I think you just start to struggle again. So 
for me, I would probably say that's a good way of doing it, you know, and I think really with, with fluctuating incomes, especially, it's probably the safest way to deal with it. Another question that's been sent in is from Roisin, and she asks, I have saved enough money for my deposit, but I have failed to meet the affordability criteria due to my fluctuating income. Is there any way around this? Yeah, I th- that's, that's a tough one. I mean, it depends on the situation as well. I would also say it depends on the lender you've spoken to and who you've actually spoken to. So I would advise, first of all, before being put off, definitely speak to a broker, speak to a specialist and actually go through what they can find in the market for you to see if there are other options. I wouldn't, wouldn't walk away from it straight away at this stage or, or sit back and start to wonder what you can do just, just in terms of income. I mean, in, you know, lenders will look for consistency and, and even more than ever before, really. I think we're in a position right now where consistency is really key. So unfortunately, I can't change that one. You know, I think we you have to get into a position where you have got a good, steady lead on your income and you, you know, you can provide that, that level of information to a lender. But as I said, you know, I think if you if you've got a contract and you've got a good level of history you can present to a lender, it might be one that speaking to um to a few other for the banks and, and building societies you haven't spoken to before, you might find that some lenders will consider it. But I, yeah, as to, as to the fluctuation on the income side of things, I think that's unfortunately one thing that you're going to find is tricky at the moment in the market. And the final question comes from George, who, again, you kind of touched on this, but he says, I would like to become a freelancer, but I've been advised that it makes getting a mortgage so much harder. Is this true? Yeah, I think... That again, as, a, as I said, I think this is probably the, the key question we always ask when anybody comes to us in the first instance, um, based on what we do. I mean, we market ourselves very clearly as a, as a contract specialist. And I think if you are a freelancer with contracts, you've got the evidence, you've got the information. It's important to understand as long as it's presented in the right way, lenders will still lend to you and they'll still lend um, you know, decent interest rates. And, and there are decent options out there to, to actually secure. So it's never as bad as people think. I think a lot of this comes down to how much you actually understand about the market yourself or the person you're having that conversation with understands about the market. And that's why I would always say, talk to a specialist, talk to someone that knows what they're doing before you get into a situation where you go ahead and start going to lenders. Because the risk is if you don't do that, you could present yourself in the wrong way. And and one of the most difficult things to overcome is if you've gone to a lender initially, represented yourself in in one way, so say providing your salary, your dividends, your, your profits from your accounts, and then all of a sudden, someone later on tells you, well, you could have used a contract. It's too late by the time you've applied to, to that lender. You can go to another, but that lender is more than likely going to carry on treating you as self-employed. So it's probably a really good one to consider. But even if you are trying to use accounts, even if you're trying to represent yourself using your self-employed income, still speak to someone that understands the market because it's, there's so many different criteria points for every single lender in the market. And there are literally hundreds of lenders out there right now um, there's even niche lenders we could go to that perhaps might charge a bit more but might consider you in a different way to a high street lender that's some really great advice simon and thank you so much just remember that if you have any questions about freelancing that you want us to put to an expert then please drop us an email at content at freelancecorner.co.uk as you know each week we quiz an expert on a different topic so if you have any question no matter what it's about we will try and get it answered for you unfortunately that's all we have time for this episode simon i'm sure we could have talked to you for hours more about mortgages because it's such a hot topic at the moment for our listeners at home you'll be able to find a lot of information in the show notes below and on the freelance corner website in fact uh, some of simon's colleagues at cmme have recently written blogs for us about some of these issues so you'll be able to find more information and links there 
Thanks for listening. Join Freelance Corner, the online platform for the UK's freelancers at freelancecorner.co.uk. Please subscribe to our podcast, like, share and leave us a review and let us know what we should quiz an expert on next time. We hope our listeners are staying safe at home and thank you so much for joining us, Simon. Good, thank you guys.